All right, now we want to move on to the reading and proclaiming of God's Word. Now, you know that when you buy a, a tool or a machine or appliance, it comes with an instruction book, right? And the first several pages of that instruction book are set apart by huge block letters saying, warning, right? And it's all the ways that you could hurt yourself with this product and things not to do. And of course, you totally ignore those pages, right? If you even look at the book at all. But that's what this passage is for the next several chapters of Jesus' instructions to his disciples for when he'll be gone. This is the warning label. The disciples weren't listening. Will we? Follow along as I read from John chapter 13, verses 21 through 38. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would help us to come and humbly sit under it. And please instruct us in it by your spirit. Give us your spirit to hear these words and apply them to our lives uh, that we might know you and walk with you and live in the freedom of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of the semester last fall, music professor Kenyon Wilson at the University of Tennessee Chattanooga decided to see if his students really read the class syllabus. You know the syllabus. It's, that, it's what you get at the beginning of each class. It goes over the grading and the rules and the assignments and the policies, blah, blah, blah. Right? And there's a lot of standard COVID stuff in there as well. But Professor Wilson said that, the, hey, there's also something new in the syllabus, so make sure you read it. That's what he said to his students. And in the middle of a sentence about making up missed classes, he put in parentheses, free to the first two claims, locker 147, combination 15, 25, 35. And then he went on with his policies. And so there in an on-campus locker the scrupulous student would have found a $50 bill and a handwritten note from the professor that said, congrats, please
please leave your name and date so I know who found it. And at the end of the semester, Professor Wilson went to the locker and he found the money and note still there. The lock hadn't even been twisted. None of, not one of his 71 students in his class read the syllabus far enough or carefully enough to find his hint. We can all struggle to focus on what we're listening to or reading, certainly when we're reading or studying familiar passages in the Bible. And chapters 13 through 17 in the Gospel of John are familiar enough and dense enough that we can read through them quickly. But the author John leaves us a pretty big hint here of how we are supposed to read these next chapters by putting Jesus' warning to Peter at the beginning of his talk. In all the other Gospels, Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial comes after his farewell words. Here, it comes before. And then also at the end of his talk, four chapters later, Jesus reminds them again they will all abandon him. So everything Jesus is about to say is bracketed by his warning to his disciples about their failure. And Judas's failure is also described right before Jesus' prediction of Peter's denial. All that to say, John wants us to hear Jesus' final instructions to his disciples in the context of our own sinfulness and weakness. This is the big warning label. Non-Christians and Christians need to hear it alike. Everything we will learn in the following chapters about Jesus preparing a place for us, coming to live in us, us abiding in him and him leaving us his spirit, him being the vine, we're the branches, all of that must be read in the context of our inability to follow and love him on our own strength. Last week was the foot washing. It was the introduction to this whole section. This week is setting the stage for how we are to listen to Jesus and apply his words. And that stage is set both by Judas's and Peter's failure. As we read these next several chapters, we are to remember two things. Take your sin seriously and take your sin to Jesus. Two points. First, take sin seriously. We have three different examples here of failing to take sin seriously. And the first and the worst is Judas. Judas is an example of willful, premeditated sin. Now, if you've only heard this passage and nothing else from John or the rest of the Gospels, you might have a problem with what I'm saying. You might counter that in verse 26, this guy Jesus knowingly gave a piece of bread to this guy Judas... And that somehow catalyzed Satan to enter into Judas and then go and betray Jesus. So on the guilt scale, it should go Jesus, then Satan, then Judas. Judas is more of a victim here. But again, that's taking this passage in isolation. What we read in the other Gospels is that Judas had already worked out a plan with the Jerusalem leadership to hand Jesus over. He came to them on his own initiative, and what this gospel says earlier in the chapter is that on this night, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. Well, so it's actually Satan's fault. And in one sense, it's true. Satan certainly shares the blame for Jesus' crucifixion. But in another sense, it's Judas's fault. And throughout the Bible, the way this question of, of guilt and responsibility is answered is that Satan only enters the hearts of those who invite him. Now, did Judas say, hey, Satan, come on in? No, we, we have no reason to believe that. The Gospels suggest that Judas was after 
money. And that he would help himself to the communal money bag from time to time. But Judas had followed Jesus for three years. And these weren't easy years. He wasn't getting rich off of being a disciple of Jesus. So throughout history, people have surmised that Judas must have also soured on Jesus over time. And many believe it was in this last week in Jerusalem when that happened. Perhaps Judas saw Jesus' unwillingness to violently overthrow the authorities as a letdown. Or maybe Jesus' fixation on being killed seemed fatalistic and defeatist. Or maybe Judas really wasn't getting Jesus' emphasis on grace and mercy and forgiveness. The point is, Judas made his heart hospitable for Satan. He was open to hearing and believing Satan's lies. From Genesis 3 to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Satan's primary tool is lying. Evil's primary weapon against you is lies, distorting the truth. And we open ourselves to bigger and bigger lies as we accommodate and make peace with sin in our lives. The Apostle Paul called this making provision for the flesh. The flesh is the inherent sin nature in all of us. When we willfully engage in sin and plan out sin, we are making provision for the flesh. And as we do that, we open the door to great evil in our lives. And we can begin to believe terrible lies like Judas believed, right? Judas came to his senses after the fact of handing Jesus over, right? He was remorseful. He recognized that he handed over an evil, uh, uh, an innocent man, and that's how evil often works. Once it's gotten what it wants from you, it switches the lies, and it confronts you with the truth and your guilt, and then it pushes self-condemnation onto you. That's evil. Taking sin seriously means making no provision for the flesh, For Judas, perhaps, it started with, you know, grabbing a few coins from the money bag for himself. But that opened the crack for the lies. Then perhaps he wanted more. He deserved more. And then maybe he began to see Jesus in a new light, a disappointing light. Then he realized he could make a nice profit by turning Jesus in. And he even goes to the authorities to find out how much he could get for Jesus. And so after all that, here we are tonight. Jesus gives him bread and says, go quickly. Judas had become a willing captive of Satan. Make no provision for the flesh. Little willful sins grow into big willful sins. If you're married, do not look up an old girlfriend or boyfriend on Google or Facebook. That's not innocent. That doesn't lead to good things. Don't figure out ways to spend more time with that attractive coworker or neighbor or fudging a little bit on your taxes or your company reports or skimming a little bit off the top, drinking a lot alone, hotel rooms with movie channels, technology without accountability software. These are things that open the door to greater lies and greater sins. Making provision for the flesh makes your heart a hospitable home for evil forces and their lies. Now, probably not the personal Satan. He likely has bigger fish to fry than you or I. But Judas's betrayal is told in such a way in all four Gospels that we are to take note and learn from him. Take your sin seriously. And the rest of the disciples weren't. They were underestimating 
their sin or potential to sin. That's the that's second mistake, underestimating their sin. Jesus tells them at dinner, one of them will betray him. Verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Jesus drops this bomb. One of you will betray me. Now, these men were Jesus' disciples. That was a sacred bond and commitment in this culture. They had left everything to follow him for three years. And the disciples are looking around wondering, who is he talking about? How could this be? And Peter motions to John, the author of the gospel. Here he's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, to ask him who he is. Peter's like, John, John, yeah, it's not you, it's not me, but find out, find out who it is. One of these ten fools is going to betray Jesus, right? It's not, is it me? It's, which one of you is it? Remember, last week we talked about the weakest link, that a church is only as strong as the dignity and love it shows its weakest link. And I said, if you were looking around and wondering, who is that weakest link? Well, you had it all wrong. That's what these disciples were doing, thinking someone else was the failure, underestimating their own sin, their own capacity to sin, because all of them are going to flee and abandon Jesus. From cover to cover, the Bible warns us to take sin seriously and not to underestimate it. Jesus talked about this all the time in the Gospels. He can sound like a real downer sometimes. But in our culture, we have a way of understanding sin to help us make sense of it and thereby minimize it. People who do terrible things have bad genes or bad experiences, right? It's nurture or nature, right? There's trauma, there's societal injustice, there's economic hardship, there's bullying when they were kids, there's bad parents, there's availability of guns, there's a lack of mental health care, there's poor education, addictions, mental illness, right? The list goes on and on and on to, to understand and, and excuse what happened. We want sufficient and logical explanations for the bad choices we all make, particularly for the really evil choices. And that gives a sense of safety and control if we can explain it. But over the years, I've thought that maybe this was the point of my story because I have none of that. I have no trauma. I had great parents, tons of opportunity, all the privileges, healthy, a decent intellect, Great community, tons of friends growing up. I have a, my dream job. I have a beautiful family, wife and children. The only hardship I can talk about is that I'm short and I'm cross-eyed. Right? So I can't hit a fastball and I can't dunk a basketball. Now, I mean, a nine-year-old's fastball I cannot hit and I cannot dunk on a mini hoop. Right? That's how bad it is. But it's not that bad. Maybe you've heard this recent term, intersectionality. I have no intersections, and I'm the greatest sinner I know, and I have zero excuse. The ways that I distort and twist and betray all the blessings and gifts in my life cannot be explained by our culture's narratives, our culture's excuses, cannot. Now, I know many of you do have intersections. And so many of you have trauma in your past. You have come from troubled households, and you do battle real health conditions, but I don't. And I'm living proof that sin runs deeper than all of those things. At its heart, sin is a darkness that wants everything destroyed. Did you hear John's ominous words? It was night. 
There's a darkness here. There's a disintegration. Our seminary professors drilled it into us. Sin is irrational. And it will use our hurts and our desires and our self-centeredness. But at its core, it just wants to destroy everything. And so when we act in sin, we are acting out of irrational self-destruction. Why do our marriages fall apart? Why do we end up messing up our kids? Why can't we stick to our commitments? Why can't we be happy with a decent job and a decent place to live? Why don't we give ourselves more fully to Jesus and the things of God or just the good that we know we should do? Because we so often choose to live in sin, the flesh. We allow it to have power. Sin doesn't make sense, and we can't solve for it ourselves. So don't underestimate it. Take sin seriously. Finally, for this point, the other side of the coin of underestimating sin is, of course, overestimating yourself. And this is what Peter does in verse 37. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Right, again, Peter shows his brashness, his impetuousness, right? He's a great example of both underestimating sin and overestimating himself. Because we should assume Peter really believes what he is saying, right? He is truly determined to die for Jesus to protect him. He really believes he will. And Jesus is incredulous. He's like, Peter, what are you talking about? Before the sun rises tomorrow, you're going to deny me three times. And when the moment of truth comes, Peter will curse himself and curse Jesus and swear up and down that he doesn't know him and he's not his disciple. Silicon Valley culture has both of these, underestimating sin, overestimating self. We have the know-how. We have answers. We have solutions. Right, so the more money and power and notoriety we get, the more good we can do. Right, that's a lie. Just this past week, another celebrity pastor stepped down because of uh, inappropriate online activity. And uh, Javier, our, our team director, texted that news to uh, me and Stephen and Wilson, our worship director. And uh, Wilson texted back to the group, pray none of us are ever famous or powerful. And that's really good advice. That's taking sin seriously. That's not underestimating it like the disciples, not overestimating ourselves like Peter. Don't make peace with it. Don't make provision for it in your life like Judas did. Take it seriously. Okay, well then what? Well then, take it to Jesus. Take sin to Jesus. And we'll see two reasons here. Jesus conquers sin, and he actually renews us from sin. In between these examples of the disciples' failure, we have some words from Jesus. He tells them that he's leaving, but they cannot come with him. And he gives his famous new commandment, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, but don't betray each other, love each other. And why would that bring Jesus to the world? Well, if the disciples love one another the way Jesus has loved them, the world will see something new. It will see Jesus. That's a brand new, forgiving, merciful, open community the world has never seen. But that's the problem. It's harder to love people than it is to love Jesus, and these guys can't even love Jesus. 
Jesus is basically saying, I'm leaving, but you're staying, and it's your job to get the world to know about me. One of you will betray me, your leader will deny me, and you all will abandon me. But love each other better than any community has ever loved in the history of the world. What hope do they have? Well, it starts with what Jesus says in verse 31 and 32. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. What Jesus means is, he will be glorifying God the Father by going to the cross. His love for the Father and his love for the world is so great that he would offer himself up as a sacrifice for it. That is the greatest revelation of the heart of God. And so if Jesus glorifies his Father that way, the Father will glorify his Son by raising him from the dead. And in raising Jesus from the dead, sin will be overcome and defeated. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. The light and glory of God casts out the darkness and defeats the sin. Jesus is the only place to take our deep, irrational, dark self-destruction. And we see Jesus hinting at that here in this passage. Verse 37, again, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? But in the Greek, it literally, it literally reads, your life for me you're going to lay down? Right? Your life and me are emphasized in the Greek. Jesus is saying, Peter, you have it all backward. It's my life for you that I lay down. We take our sin to Jesus because in his death and resurrection, he can save us from sin's destructiveness. His death washes our guilt away. We saw that just last week with the foot washing. And the way that happens, the way we appropriate that is by trusting him. Instead of covering up our sin or dealing with it ourselves or its consequences on our own, in our own strength, we cry out to him. We open ourselves to him and we ask him to cover our sin. Several months ago, my, my wife Erin kept pointing out to me how angry I seemed, how short I could be with the girls and just generally grumpy, right? And I know some of you are saying, well, Bob, that's just who you are. And that's what I was saying to my wife. This is just who I am. There's nothing new here. I'm not angry. Stop telling me I'm angry. But uh, in the spirit of taking sin seriously, I actually added this to my confession to God in prayers, right? In my prayers, I literally said to God, Aaron says I'm angry. Uh, I don't really know what she's talking about, but if that's the case, I, I need your help. Um, and I prayed that a few times, and all of a sudden, my eyes opened up to all the ways that I was angry and how I was expressing it, and that I was sinning in my anger. Because I took it to Jesus, right, and I, and I came to begin to truly confess my anger. And that's not only important for experiencing forgiveness, but also for changing. We take our sin to Jesus not only because he died for our sin, to conquer it and bring us forgiveness, but also because he renews us and rescues us from it in this life. He can bring change now. Why is Jesus saying this, these things to his disciples? One of you will betray me. You will all abandon me. You will deny me. Why is he saying this? Well, yes, to show that he's in control and he's not surprised by sin, but also maybe to try to draw his disciples away from their sin and back to him. 
Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This phrase, troubled in spirit, like this uh, Jesus' internal position, it's the same phrase used for Jesus when he was observing the grief outside of Lazarus' tomb in chapter 11, when he was contemplating his crucifixion in chapter 12, right? The, the death of his friend, his own impending torture, and the betrayal of another friend, right? Jesus is reacting strongly here. He is no stoic. This hurts he loves Judas and his disciples. This was Judas's last chance to bring his sin to Jesus. And what was going through Judas's mind when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, right? Did his eyes get wide? Did his, did his heart start pounding? Did he think twice? Did he consider coming clean? And what about Peter when Jesus said he would deny him three times? Did Peter give that any credence to that? What if Judas or Peter had said, Lord, I could do all that and worse. Please help me. Forgive me. Would Jesus have responded in love with help? Of course he would have. This is how Paul put it in the, uh, to, to the Corinthian church, his first letter, chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This was the disciples' way of escape. Jesus was giving them another chance. Jesus gives us another chance. He opens ways of escape. And coming to Jesus with our sin is the primary way that we walk away from temptation. It's the way that we can experience victory in the moment. Jesus wants his people to stick close to them, to him. In fact, he'll soon tell his disciples to abide in him. And that's how their love for one another will show Jesus to the world. Right? The, the way Jesus' disciples will love each other well is by them constantly coming back to Jesus to remember and receive his love. That means living a life of repentance. Taking sin seriously and regularly taking it to Jesus is the process whereby we are renewed and restored to go out and love in ways that astonish the world. Some of you here are wondering to yourselves, could I be Judas? It's a terrifying thought. Could I be making provision for the flesh, opening my heart to lies through which one day I will completely betray Jesus and die in my sin. You don't have to be afraid of that if you are bringing your sin to Jesus. Living a life of repentance keeps you close to Jesus and keeps him working in your life, no matter how sinful or messy you are right now. Jesus has you and is telling a good story through you. Did you notice the difference in vocabulary Jesus uses here with Peter? Verse 33, Jesus says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot come. But to Peter, he says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Right? The words change. He told the crowd they could not come. He tells Peter he cannot follow him now. And that word follow also means follow as a disciple. 
Peter, you're not a mature enough disciple to follow me to the cross right now, but you will grow and mature, and I will work in you so that you will follow me as a mature disciple later. These must have been very encouraging words to Peter over the years as he painfully recalled his denial of Jesus. You will be a mature, full follower of me. Jesus knows it. He will see to it. Our job is to keep coming back to him, bringing our sin to him, bring our fears and our hurts and our doubts, bring it all to him, and he will make us good followers. My uh, sophomore year in college was the fall of 1995. Four weeks into the semester, I walked into my statistics class, and they're passing out a packet of questions and problems. And I look at someone and I ask, oh, is this a study packet for the midterm? No, they answered, this is the midterm. Right now? What? It was never mentioned in class. There was no talk of review or studying, no prep whatsoever. And they said, oh, well, it's on the syllabus, online. It's the fall of 1995. What does this word mean, online? But never even, never even thought to check. Worst grade in college, because I didn't read the syllabus. And the real syllabus for all of us is the Bible. And it tells us that Jesus has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. Knowing and abiding in Jesus is abundant life. And the thing that gets in the way of it and keeps us from knowing and enjoying Jesus is sin. It makes us believe lies. It makes us betray the things and the people we love. It kills us. But Jesus has defeated it. Take sin seriously. And then take your sin to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your son Jesus. We thank you that he came and died and he fought for us on the cross. And now he stands and lives to intercede for us as our great high priest. Uh, Please work in us by your spirit that we would bring our whole selves to our high priest, to Jesus. And trusting that in him we have full cleansing, full forgiveness. And that we would begin to taste and experience his victory over sin now. Make us a community of humble followers of his. Where we love one another and we love people on the outside. We love strangers. We love enemies in such a way that the world learns who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.